Hey everyone, this is Josh Jackson from Six Clicks and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and today we have episode 226 uh, for June 28th, 2021. Now, quick note, I don't often do it this way. I usually record the intros and outros to the podcast like the weekend before. So if there's anything, any hot topics, I can make sure I try to address those so they're fresh and ready on Monday's show. But uh, I actually recorded this a week ago. So if there's any like crazy cybersecurity or privacy story in the news right now and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe Carrie didn't mention it. That's why. I had to record it early because I had a little vacation, uh, and by the time this drops, I will actually be back, but uh, will not have had time to have done this before I get back, so so anyway, just FYI. This week, we got a second interview from a different person. We had a really fun time last week talking to Jason Williams and Carl Rodeo about their Hackasat program, and today we're going to talk with yet another cybersecurity expert named Josh Jackson. He's from a company called Six Clicks, and today we're just going to kind of do a review of the current unfortunately sad state of cybersecurity right now and uh you know what we're gonna do to make things better he and his company are out there on the front lines making things better for companies that employ them and so he was a good person to talk to about this and you know are things getting better things getting worse why can't we seem to do why can't we seem to keep the bad guys out his company in particular is using artificial intelligence so i'm definitely going to be asking him you know, how that plays in all this, how it can help us do better at defending against cyber attacks. But also, is this just something that the bad guys are also going to use against us? Now, real quick, this is the last week. June is almost over. The promotion to get your D20 challenge coin uh, and be, by becoming a patron, uh, that time is just about up. If you catch this when this drops on Monday, Wednesday is the end of the month. So you only have three days, really two, to get that challenge coin. Now, I have not had enough new patrons to use up all the coins that I minted. So there's still some around and I will find some other creative ways to uh, get them out to fans and possibly patrons again in the future. But I'm not sure when, not sure how. So if you want to lock one of those puppies in and get one in your hot little hands now is the time. Go to patreon.com search up firewalls don't stop dragons and you'll find the info there and there's actually a link in the show notes of course you can click directly on that to get info that way these things are really cool i'm really glad i did these it's been a lot of fun brought in some great new patrons too uh loving talking with everybody on discord the community is just getting bigger and you could be a part of it all righty now let's get to our interview with josh jackson <laughs> Josh Jackson is an avid student of law, policy, and regulations. He's a speaker on artificial intelligence and automation and a teacher on the legal and regulatory environment of business. He is passionate about ethics and agency law and corporate and regulatory risk. Welcome to the show, Josh. Thanks for having me, Kerry. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you here because uh, we haven't had you on the show before and you've got a really interesting background. Um, so actually, let's let's start there. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself, like how you got into cybersecurity, You know, maybe what kind of things you've worked on and what are you working on right now? I I mean I think life is always a ever changing sort of sort of thing and at the very beginning so I, I was a chemist by trade and oh, wow. yeah I did chemistry for a long time and regulations were a part of uh, the piece in terms of businesses and how they think about drug development and the like and then you know kind of fast forwarding a little bit I 
really focused in on shifting from the science, basic science, to how do we think about healthcare law. Went to Emory Law for healthcare law, really focused on that. And at the same time, did some lobbying around healthcare law. During that process, I was really getting into emerging technologies and how artificial intelligence works and what are the regulatory environments around it. Mm. And as I'm thinking about those pieces of emerging technology, the sector that really needed some help was the cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. And is there a way that you can keep up with some of these information security, cybersecurity issues and risks and use artificial intelligence as a tool to mitigate those risks, plug some of these issues and, mm. and be more efficient and effective because all the, 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 the bad actors are using any and every tool that they can. <laughs> Absolutely. And they're, they might be under some sort of, right? If you're doing something illegal, obviously that's breaking the law and it's breaking regulation, but they're not really interested in all of that. So <laughs> right. from, from a business side and an ethical side, folks not only need to be compliant with the regulations, but they also need to thwart off, like find a way to get rid of these risks. And so the only way you're going to be able to do it is through automation. And so that's kind of how I got into it was it's, it's very few people are using automation and artificial intelligence. And at, definitely at the time to think about regulatory risks and think about cyber threats. Gotcha. Let's start out with a basic question at the high level. Like, like what is the state of cybersecurity today? Like, you know, in your opinion, are things getting worse? Or are they getting better? And, and, and like, what do you feel like probably the most impactful threats right now? When I say impactful, you know, there's a lot of stuff that gets big headlines and then there's things that actually matters to most people. Like, you know, at the end of the day, what are, what are the things that are happening right now that you think are probably the most dangerous? So the first part, I would say it's getting, it's definitely getting worse. <laughs> um, and I, I hate to be that person. <laughs> <laughs> Not surprised to hear you say it, but it's good to hear it from another expert. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's getting worse. And really, you know, the pandemic, you know, we, we, we focused a lot on, is it, is it because people were working remotely? Mm. Is that when it happened? But it happened well before that. We saw a lot more threats and a lot more data breaches. So technology is getting smarter and with human beings being creatures of habit, we don't like to change as much. Hmm. And there's been this vulnerability in our systems and how our government thinks about cybersecurity. And it's just going to continue to get worse until things, government takes it seriously and businesses take these almost like that shield approach, like cybersecurity is a shield, mm. information security is a shield. And we tend to be very offensive driven with a mm. business. How do I drive my business forward mm -hmm. rather than how do I protect my business? I think that, that that's the direction we need to go is being on the defensive and then developing tools to be offensive in how we think about cybersecurity. So what do you think are the most, what are the biggest threats right today? 
Obviously, the biggest threat right now is the data. Since data is what people are calling the the new oil, mm. right? Then people are going to want to steal that data to turn it into monetary gain, and that comes in the form of you know ransomware is obviously something yeah. that everyone everyone is a- attached to, but at the end it's the data that's the most valuable so even if you lose that data they have someone that's going to want to buy it right yeah and certainly we're going to talk about ransomware today but again at the staying at the high level why is it that we cannot seem to stop these attacks we've got a lot of really smart people out there like yourself included there's you know these companies you know maybe you can make some excuses for the smaller companies that don't have a full-fledged id department or certainly don't have a full-fledged you know maybe cybersecurity department but a lot of these companies that are getting hacked are big name companies with you know deep pockets. So, you know, why why is it that we can't seem to stop these attacks? Are we is it a technical failure? Are we just failing to create secure systems? Or is it a like a people failure? And is, are we the weakest link? Is it you know social engineering or misconfigured systems or or is it probably some combination of both? I think it's definitely a people problem. Hmm. And I, I like to I don't know if you like analogies on this. Oh, I love analogies. So if you have two or three people that are really smart and they have everything uh, put together, let's just say five people, we'll call that a basketball team, right? Okay. They're all really good at basketball. They do really well at their job. It's going to be easy to fix and correct some minor flaws between another one of your teammates within basketball. If you take something like soccer, if one person makes a a minor mistake Mm -hmm. and they give the ball to the other team, then it doesn't matter if you have five great players, 10 great players, you're as strong as your weakest player in Hmm. soccer. And so with these large organizations, you have members that have access to the network very easily and they wait they're behind the shadows right Mm. and they say okay this is our weak link how do we get access to them (laughs) and can they give us access to someone else and then once they sit and wait then the information comes that they need to access the entire system it's 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 game over Okay, so play that analogy out in a real-world scenario. Like, how did that method give rise to an attack uh, that, you know, that maybe you could explain? Yeah, okay, so this is perfect. I was thinking about a company, a student, that needed software to do data analytics. And he was a part of a university system. And they had, they had, universities have a ton of intellectual property, right? Mm-hmm. He couldn't afford the software and mm-hmm. the organization would not pay for the software. So what does he do? He goes to find free software online. Mm. <laughs> so he, he purchases the software with his information and it's what they call, I guess, cracked software right right yep and so now he's basically given access to whoever's on the other end right and he's saying in chat rooms 
Hey, I can't afford this. Does anybody have an alternative to this? You know, this is where I work, you know, all these pieces of, of the puzzle and they get in, lock up the system, pull all the data. Yeah. There, there, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So for maybe those, other, those in the audience who are, are aware, so there's, when you're doing uh, software cracks, it, a lot of times it, these software is like big packages, like, you know, uh, the Adobe packages and Microsoft and some of these come with, you know, license keys. And, and so a lot, a lot of people, when they can't afford it, they go to shadier parts of the internet to try to find cracked software and get, and get a, a license key that will work or a version of the software that will work with a, a null key or something like that, which is like what you're talking about. And it, invariably <laughs> those, you know, the people that are smart enough to figure out how to do that to, you know, Microsoft office or Adobe Lightroom or whatever, are also smart enough to lace that with malware. <laughs> and yeah, so it uh, doesn't surprise me at all that that is a common example. Yeah. Let's talk about a couple of specific ones. So the solar winds supply chain hack this was surely one of the most consequential attacks in modern history. But can you explain to us the concept of a supply chain attack and then maybe give us an overview of what happened in this particular case? Yeah. So in terms of supply chain, it, this goes back to the weakest link. And in terms of your supply chain and your vendors, if your system is recognizing this person at this vendor as a trusted source, then a lot of times I, you know, we, I could say, well, Hey, Carrie, I'm one of your vendors. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to talk to X, Y, and Z at your company. And they're going to go, Oh yeah, I'm a vendor of so-and-so. And they, they let you in. Right. Mm -hmm. I think this is what happens quite a bit is we see with these large organizations and especially with government that, the sources and vendors have been vetted to a particular degree, but everyone's not trusted. Mm. And so those vendors come along and someone masks what that vendor looks like and the appropriate controls are not in place to meet some of these red flags. Like I said earlier, the folks tend to linger around and wait <laughs> mm -hmm. and hold on just long enough that when the information that comes through, it's almost like someone's listening, right? Mm -hmm. And they're just listening and waiting for the right information to come across the, the sound waves to then be able to penetrate the most vulnerable piece to get into the larger, larger part. And that's how I see the solar winds make an effect, right? Is that they had access to the system and this system was trusted by everybody in the government. Yeah. It, it affected a lot of people. I mean, I forget what the count, last count was I heard, but it was, it was amazing. And how many other different companies were using the solar winds software in their system. In my head, it's kind of like, okay, if I want to poison everybody in town and I want to, you know, let's say I want to put poison on all the bread. Well, instead of going to each bread maker, I just go to the where they all get their flour. But maybe there's one guy in town they all buy flour from, and I poison the flour. And so now I don't have to go to each individual baker. They're all using the same flour. And, and then all of a sudden I've gotten to everybody. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard to see right in that flour. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's really clever. And, and 
yeah, I have a feeling we're going to see more of that, especially with, it seems like, I don't know, there's so much consolidation in, in corporations and certain key elements in, the, in our various pipelines that they all seem to have choke points. Like we're all finding out now with chip shortages, right? I mean, it wasn't, well, I mean, now is not a good example because it's kind of affecting everybody. But like when there was a fire at a chip plant in China at one point, it impacted a lot of other people because we all of a sudden realized, oh, there's only like three chip plants, <laughs> you know, on the planet. And when one of them goes down, we all feel it. And uh, yeah, so. Okay. Uh, well, it's been a little while since that story broke. At this point, do we, you know, do we have a handle on the full impacts or the ramifications of that incident? Because in my mind, when this came out, I was thinking, oh man, we're going to be dealing with this one for months, if not years. Do we even have a handle really on, like, do we have our arms around what really the impacts were of solar winds? Or are we still trying to dig out from underneath that? Yeah, and I, you know, maybe I'm not the, the perfect one for all of this, but from what I understand and what I'm previewed to, that this is still something that we're having to deal with. Who knows where everything, where everything was penetrated? Yeah. So I think we're, it's just a constant trying to correct the issue and and move forward because again, who's lurking behind the shadows and where are they sitting? as things continue to be uh, more and more complex and the amount of IT infrastructure that's currently in place, it, it continues to increase in complexity yep. and it varies a, a, across agency environments that solar winds took place. Right. So right. I think that's, it's going to continue to be an issue and hopefully we can, make waves and move through some of these issues. And I think that's where the executive order from president Biden kind of puts some of these things into place to, to give everybody notice uh, across all agencies. I think the thing that scares me the most about things like this, and we're going to talk about this uh, with this next case that we're going to bring up too. And that is when there's these broad vulnerabilities that are, that are left open for long enough, it's, it's not the initial attack that I mean, the initial attack is straightforward. It's it's what do they leave behind, right? I mean, so they, they they get in, and then then they can move from there from the infected machine to other machines, and then they're not only exploiting the initial vulnerability, but they're perhaps exploiting other ones that are within your network and leaving behind other malware. And and then you got to so you not only have to fix the first flaw, you got to you got to figure out what else they exploited once after they exploited the first flaw. And so that's why I really think that this is going to be, who knows? I mean, short of like throwing out all the computer systems that may have been attached and starting over. I don't know. What do you do? All right. So let's, let's move on to another one that is different, but also extremely powerful and, and broad scope. And that is the Microsoft exchange server attacks, which happened after solar winds, but only a couple months ago, or maybe just a month ago now. And if, you know, for those who aren't aware, Microsoft exchange is the email server used by, by like every major company on the planet, you know, any company of any major size, pretty much, leans on Microsoft Exchange to run their email system. So it's it's everywhere. In your mind, how, how does that compare, you know, compare and contrast that with the SolarWinds attack? Like what was, how are they the same? How, are they, how might they be different? I don't think it was the new sort of say Office 365, which was mm. all cloud-based. Mm -hmm. And so when you have something on-prem or in that sort of hybrid scenario, you potentially aren't updating it all the time and right. keeping it up to date. And that that's typical of a lot of organizations where they don't update their security and 
understand these are the vulnerabilities. So let's update it. Let's patch this immediately. So can you find a flaw where there's not an update to that system and then be able to quickly jump in and collect as much information as possible? Right. Yeah, that's yeah. That is an interesting point, and, and I, I think it kind of cuts both ways. It, it, in one sense, you're either taking it upon yourself to to manage your own software or letting someone else do it, and obviously that could go bad either way. I mean, I guess if you're if you're leaning on Microsoft, you you're hoping that they're going to keep every, all their own stuff up to date. You can assume they would, mm-hmm. but yeah, you're right. In this case, if it's an on-prem, if it's old software that has vulnerabilities that people aren't getting updated, and this was actually a big problem with these Microsoft things. Is, they like missed a patch Tuesday. They like to do it every month, right? And they missed the, they missed a patch Tuesday, and for some reason waited. But at that point, it had leaked, and the bad guys figured it out and started mm-hmm. hammering on it. And Microsoft didn't get it out in time, and there was there were some Microsoft problems there too. And then after the fact, there were a lot of people still weren't updating because you know there's mom and pop, you know, or, there are smaller and medium businesses out there that just don't have the time or resources to you know update all their systems all the time and. Uh, I mean, the FBI and Microsoft, in some cases, I think, didn't they take that into their own hands? Didn't they actually push out? I think that was, I think the Microsoft one is where the government actually, or the FBI actually kind of hacked the vulnerable computers and fixed them. Was, wasn't that the case? Didn't they try to yeah, push yeah. out an update that way? Yeah. And they didn't tell right. all the users. Right. Right. So they used legal instruments to basically say, right. like, hey, we're not going to let people know that we're doing this so that we can fix the issues. Right. So was it March? So this was just March because I'm looking at it right now is that Microsoft, people were taking advantage of the unpatched systems to attack organizations with on-premise exchange servers. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. There's confirmation. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah, that would make sense that those would be the ones that would be lagging in terms of getting updated. One of the things that's really difficult in a lot of these cases, and our intelligence agencies and law enforcement, FBI and whatever, try to do the best they can, but attribution for these things is always difficult, trying to figure out really who did it. Because it's in the digital realm, if you're really smart, you can make it look like someone else did it. You can at least hide the fact that you did it. Why is attribution so difficult and how confident can't we be that when we hear it on the news that, oh, this is blamed on Russia, or this is blamed on North Korea, how how confident can we be that that assessment was accurate? Yeah, I don't think you can be confident in terms of looking at the news and, and, and what, they're, what they're talking about in terms of who's to blame. Unfortunately, I personally think anyone that's not a part of the government and they're in a different world it's going to be super hard to hold them accountable to something in the mm. in the US and i think likewise if you're in the US and you're in another country whatever it might be the US is is always trying to protect its citizens and even more so i think some of our adversaries though they aren't responsible i think they're going to be very reluctant to give up give up one of their uh, citizens to the United States. Oh, sure, yeah, right. And so these multiple actors being able to attribute to them is always going to be difficult. And even if you can attribute it to someone, I think that's the more interesting. What are you going to do with them? <laughs> 
how are you going to hold them to the laws of the United States in a different country? Yeah, that is tricky. I mean, what do you, you know, you know, in the cases we've come up with, they, you know, our law enforcement has come out and said, well, we're pretty sure that Russia did it. And I think it's in this latest one, they were saying that it was not necessarily directly sanctioned by Putin, but it's one of those things where it's a wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Putin likes to have hackers in his country hacking other countries, as long as you're not hacking Russia. And every once in a while, as part of that, you know, letting that slide, he'll come and ask you for favors. So it, it does make it tough. And you're right. It would, so then what do you do? You know, it seems to me that we really need to be focused on defense first um, because offense is sometimes not even practical. Yeah. I mean, it's the dance, right? It's a, we have to think about this a lot like a dance within our own organizations is what can we do now? And this goes back to training our workforce and the education development within our organization to try and help everyone in the organization identify some of these risks and issues remediate whatever issues are there and then defend against those those attacks. You mentioned ransomware and it has certainly uh, grown significantly uh, I think in the last few years and seems it seems to be all over the news in this past year uh, including you know the colonial pipeline shutdown which we'll talk about in a second but um, how is it that let's let's just talk real quick how does ransomware work and and why is it so effective? Well, this is my own little soapbox probably is that (laughs) I'll start with the effectiveness here. Data is the new thing. And if you can hold all of the gold, Mm -hmm. right, and someone wants to pay you market value for that data, and we have been doing that in the U.S. where governments, state, local, and even industry are paying for that data back. Mm. And it's in the hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Mm. Why wouldn't someone try and do it again? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Financial incentives are quite high. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So incentives are high. Still the attack is encrypting servers and, data access is blocked to computer systems, right? Like that's Mm -hmm. how it works. If there's still a lot of on-prem and you're not updating your systems and backed up in a a different way, we saw this with Garmin as an example. Hmm. What was that one? Yeah, they, they got locked out. And Garmin actually does a lot with the FAA Hmm. in aviation. Mm. they ended up having to just rebuild their servers. They didn't pay. Mm, okay. But that still takes a lot of resources, right? Right. Well, and now it's, now they're doing what they call double extortion, right? It wasn't so as people, as companies kind of get the idea that, hmm, maybe I better have good backups of my data in case this happens and not, or there's a natural disaster or whatever. You should always back up your data. Now they're going to the point of posting that data. It's like, okay, well, sure, you may have backups, but we've actually exfiltrated your data. And if you don't pay us, then we're going to share that data. And it could be intellectual property. It could be, you know, embarrassing stuff. Even if you have backups, you're not safe. Yeah. I mean, I guess in terms of paying the money backups. Right. Yeah. But I guess this this goes back to the what information are you holding and how valuable is it to you? Right. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, we we're we we're putting dollar figures on that on that as we speak with a lot of people, unfortunately. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about the Colonial Pipeline one. This one, I guess, has been wrapped up, sort of. I think there's, I, my guess is there's going to be an investigation because it sounds like it's still a little weird. But I mean, that I, I'm here in North Carolina. Um, I think you're on the East Coast. So did you did you feel this? I know I did. A lot of our gas stations here are out of gas. Was it impacted where you were? I personally, I, I live in Washington D.C., so supposedly there was not a lot of gas because there was some hoarding of gas, mm, Yep. but I don't drive that much. So it didn't in- impact me. I did notice that the price of gas, cause I, I looked, uh, went up a little bit and in some places there was definitely price gouging, mm. uh, which I think people were trying to take advantage of that. Oh, uh, sure. Luckily, yeah. you know, and that's a different conversation on terms right, of yeah. legality, but, right. um, right. so yes, we were, we were impacted here, not to a crazy degree like North Carolina, uh, <laughs> had some crazy situations that yeah. I see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm the same boat. I, I, I don't drive that much either, so I didn't. It didn't really impact me personally. But I know a lot of people that were like, oh, I just happened to be caught out. Like uh, my tank was almost empty, so yeah, I don't drive much, but I I do drive. <laughs> and so like my daughters, I uh, I immediately informed them. You know, when I saw that there was going to be a run on gas, and of course this just perpetuates the run on the gas. But you know, what are you going to do? Right. Um, I knew that my one daughter was just about out of gas, and she had a big. Uh, she had to drive soon. I knew she, so I said, you better go get some gas now or you're not going to be able to get it. And she had to go to four different stations before she found mm. one. And then even that one had really long lines. And, but she was, she was able to finally top up. The other one didn't, she tried a few stations and gave up, but she didn't have to drive. So she was able to move on. Uh, but anyway, so I've heard some conflicting stories about, about this particular case. And I was wondering if you had any more insights. Uh, I've, uh, for instance, I heard that what was a lot of people think, well, they, they hacked our pipelines. Well, my understanding is no, they didn't. What they hacked was the billing system. And so, and I get it, you know, the company shut down because it couldn't get paid for its gas. I understand that they need to get paid. That's a business. I, I understand that. But it, my understanding was it was not the actual, you know, the computers running the pipeline. It was, it was the billing system. The other thing I heard is that they paid the ransom, the $5 million ransom. What do you know about this case? What, what can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, and I guess we're all hearing sort of conflicting information. Yeah. It hit the billing system, but then they shut down the pipeline due to just basically like a preemptive of hmm. what the inf- so they shut everything down to allow the ability for the hackers not to gain more information. Okay. Yeah, so right. they thought it might spread through the network from billing to the systems that actually control the pipeline. Is that what you mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. And so if you shut down the entire network, then you have to do things manually. Hmm. So then they move down to the manual path as far as from what I know. Okay. So then they took this manual path of moving gas, and then they could get the systems back online. They did apparently pay the ransom, is it? And I'd heard it was five million dollars. They, they did not. Really? Yeah. So that conflicting stories, exactly. So, yeah. <laughs> huh? When did you hear? Was that recent? Because last I heard, they that they I don't know where what the source was. Last I heard, that seemed said they paid five million dollars. But then you're right. I've heard other stories that say they didn't. So I'm really confused. Yes, yeah, I heard through I think it's Bloomberg. Their sources said that they did not pay it. Huh. Okay. 
So this leads to yet another related topic, and I've actually talked to some folks on the sh- on the show about this before, and that is all these cybersecurity incidents have led to, of course, because we're in a capital society, they've led to cyber insurance. You know, companies mm. who are out there that want to insure you against these things, ransomware, for example. Part of what they do is they help you recover from an attack, you know, like a home insurance. If you have a tornado or flood or whatever, they come in after the damage is done and help you, you know, remediate that as best as possible. And in some cases, uh, and I know this is their usually their last line of defense, they will actually help you with paying the ransom. You know, that's part of your insurance covers is paying the ransom. I've heard from people I've interviewed on the show that some of the recovery companies that they hire, because, you know, that's not an in-house thing. Usually they hire some other outside company to help do the, you know, the forensics or the rebuilding of the computers. But a lot of these recovery companies I've heard actually behind the scenes turn around and just pay the ransom. And then they charge, then they turn around and charge you with a little bit of profit on top. You know, if you're the kind of person who doesn't want to pay the ransom on principle, so I'm going to pay a company to recover from that instead. Well, if they just turn around and pay the ransom and <laughs> it's still happening anyway. Anyway, surely you've heard of this. What, what is, what is your personal take on the whole cyber insurance industry? Is it a, does, it is a good thing? Is it, a, is it something that people should investigate and it's a legitimate thing? Or is it just people looking to make money off of the misery of others? <laughs> I'm not a super big fan of the cyber insurance. I mean, it still doesn't protect your data and getting it back or doing any sort of controls to hold on to the data. I know that the some insurance companies that have been issuing policies have now said that they're going to stop offering policies hmm. to reimburse for ransomware hacks. Because it's just too expensive, like that, or what? Why? Why? Like, why are they stopping doing it? Well, I mean, let's think what the option is with cyber insurance or any insurance, right? If it's not profitable for them mm, to think about yeah. the long, the long haul, and there's been so many data breaches yeah. that they're just going to continue to pay out. Maybe they do it once, but then they're going to be like, "Nope, we're not doing it again." So you're just kind of wasting your money or you're losing your data Mm. and the longevity of it is not going to work. Hmm. So if you keep losing your data and they keep paying it out, at what point does the insurance company say, we're just not going to do this and uh, we're not going to issue you a policy. (laughs) That is the thing about insurance. It's like, it's like casinos. The house always wins. And if for some reason the house can't win, then, I, then they're not going to be in the business of, of being a casino. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, one of the one of the other things that, that's been coming up lately as these attacks have happened and is this notion of, you know, not negotiating with terrorists. And, and the thought of paying the ransom just encourages more ransomware to the point where one of the proposals that has been floated, at least in the U.S. government, uh, is to actually outlaw the paying of these ransoms and even fining. I've heard that you know, if you pay the ransom, they will they will fine you for paying the ransom. The idea being is that if you make it illegal for companies to pay and they can't pay and they, or don't pay, the ransomware gangs have no money to make and then it just goes away. But there's obviously problems with that. <laughs> what do you think that's a viable solution? Should we be considering that as an option or or not? I mean, everything sounds great in uh, the abstract terms, right? Right. I think there's bigger plays 
from this, uh, as there always are when we involve the government in different issues. Mm-hmm. You know, we can talk about again the analogy of the the war on drugs, right? Mm. What is being used to leverage to have an upper hand, and I think with cyber attacks, information security, critical infrastructure, there are certain actors that we're learning from. There are certain things that are occurring. How do we, as a government, I'm sure they're going to think about how do we leverage some of these techniques to gain an upper hand? This sounds like a conspiracy theory right now, (laughs) but we like to say it when it's not our data. (laughs) Right. Right. That's being stolen. Like, Oh, don't negotiate with terrorists, but depending on how much data you have, and you want to get it back and how much secrecy that you you need you don't want to outlaw it because money talks and mm-hmm. where we we like to to gain that data back through the use of something like money as long as we're able to sort of trace it back to whoever's causing the issue yeah certainly i think it's going to be fraught with issues i mean it, it'd be like telling parents of kids that were kidnapped oh nope can't pay you know, it's just not an option, right? You got to get the kids back. And in some cases that data is, is all you got. I mean, and you've got to get it back for one reason or another. Yeah. I think the, the only lag in that analogy would be once they give the the information back, how do you know that they don't have it anymore? True. Yeah, for sure. When, when a kid comes back, you're like, yep, I have the kid. (laughs) It's not duplicated. Very, very true. (laughs) Very true. All right. Let's, uh, Let's maybe talk about some more positive things. <laughs> and since we've been getting really negative here, let's let's figure out what, like what we're doing about this. And, and one of the things the U.S. government um, has done it, on multiple occasions, apparently, is try to come up with some basic guidelines for cybersecurity standards. And it sounds like a great idea. It's the kind of thing the government would do. But just in you know looking into this briefly, I, there have been several different U.S. agencies that have tried this. Uh, and several different proposals, some of them, I think multiple ones from each, uh, about how to do this over the past two decades. So we can't seem to settle on whatever these things are, or maybe they're just evolving, I don't know. But the latest one I found was uh, the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification, or CMMC. And this replaced, uh, maybe didn't replace, maybe it's in addition to you know, the, the NIST guidelines that came before that and some others. So you know, on paper, obviously, these things all seem like helpful things, but we've had somebody to choose from. Have they actually had a positive impact on our overall cyber defenses? I think it's had an impact. It's just that it hasn't had an impact as much as we would, we would like. And I think there's a lot of stepping on toes. Hmm. Between government agencies, you mean? Between government agencies. Okay. Right? Simultaneously, I think uh, th- there's not a lot of overlap, as much overlap as you would want. So sometimes you have to meet one certification, but there's no reciprocity and it's hard to have reciprocity Mm. with another authority. And so it starts to pile up. And yes, the goal of the cybersecurity maturity model would be to unify a lot of these standards for implementation of cybersecurity. I mean, it's all ambitious. I mean, NIST has been doing a lot, right? Like that's, that's also the barriers NIST is saying, well, we're, we've been here and we're working on this. Um, why, why are you adding something else <laughs> right, when, right. when we've already been here? So is that just more money that you have to, to spend or try and trying to work through? Uh, so that there's definitely 
conflict and is this good or is this not what we want to do? Um, but I think the majority would say, Hey, we're taking some steps to unify, but yes, it's not perfect. Is that a positive thing or no? Uh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. Uh, I guess it remains to be seen. Uh, hopefully it will be, but yeah, it just, I, when I look back and I saw the long litany of, uh, of various things that have come out, I'm like, man, like we, we've had so many chances. There's so many bites at this apple. Why, you know, why, why are we still where we're at? And it, but yeah, I don't know. In the last year, literally within the last 12 months, the government has done two things, though, I think that, that might have a better approach. And certainly anybody who believes in free market economics probably prefers this over straight up regulations. And that is they've used the government's buying power to try to influence what companies do, um, non-governmental companies. And, for example, there was, uh, there was an IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act of 2020. That basically said, if the government's going to buy from you, then the, these IoT devices, these Internet of Things devices, must meet you know minimum security standards. And so while it's not them saying you shall do this or you know you'll be fined, it's well you can do whatever you want. But if, if you want to sell to the government and we got a lot of money to spend, then you need to up your game. And similarly, I think some things like that were contained in the executive order from the Biden administration uh, that you I think you alluded to earlier. Uh, on you know improving the nation's cybersecurity. So, talk to us a little bit about that. What what do you think about that approach? You know, kind of using the purchasing power of the government to influence how private companies might improve their products and how that might affect the rest of us, not just the government. Yeah, and this is probably where I love spending the most of my time hmm. is if we look back at some Nobel Prize winners in economics. They've basically said that if there's right amount of force of the regulation, then you can help boost the economy. You can help with innovation. Hmm. And the challenge, I think, becomes is a lot of the legacy systems or these really old players within the field, they don't like a ton of change mm. <laughs> because then it reduces the amount of market share that they have, hmm. right? I think that innovation helps. And one thing that in this executive order, they talk about, I think it's section three, the modernization of federal government cybersecurity is basically building in even multi-factor authentication requirements. Like they didn't even have those, <laughs> right? Across all federal government. So... You, you need to develop those best practices. And that's just one aspect of how do we modernize this whole system? And if we can do that, I think that's going to be a lot better. That's, that's helpful. You had mentioned different laws. I mean, we can go back to 1984, certain laws being put into place. Even more recently, say 2011, was the whole federal risk and authorization management program or how everybody calls it's called FedRAMP. Oh yeah. Um, mm -hmm. I've heard of that. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was designed to accelerate the adoption of security cloud solutions and improve the confidence of security cloud solutions within the federal government. But we haven't even gotten there to migrate to the cloud environment. Hmm. All right. So that's 2011 where, and 10 years later. Right. So how do we, I, I think the excitement of the executive order is that we're thinking more about it and putting some of these timelines on there. 
but you still have continued use. Like here's the but, right? Mm-hmm. That Department of Defense, for example, a lot of their employees are still continuing to use Internet Explorer as the primary <laughs> browser. Jeez. So the reason why Microsoft got rid of the Internet Explorer more than anything was it was a broken system. Too many vulnerabilities, couldn't even fix oh, yeah. it. We're shutting Horrible. it down, yeah. right? You might as well start something from scratch because the the issues are there. So people are still using these legacy systems. And now this executive order is like, all right, we really have to change things because we just had 17 states get hacked from vulnerabilities, Mm. essentially, right? It's like the indirect ramifications of being hacked at a pipeline is it affects so many other business options. I had talked about this earlier in terms of compliance and non-compliance. Yeah, you might be able to drive your car, but if you're not keeping up on your brake pads, then when you go to try and brake and you don't have it, Mm. you're going to cause more than just the car won't stop. You're going to run into other things. It's going to stop business functions. You're probably going to have to go to court. And who knows what else it's going to do for the trust of your business. Yeah, reputation. Yeah, exactly. So, and then are you going to be able to drive that car? No, you're not going to be able to drive the car. So the business might just implode right there um, if you're not thinking about things. So I think the government is trying to say like, look, if we don't get this in order and start developing and modernizing these systems and best practices, the zero trust architecture right, and increase encryption protocols, multi-factor authentication, moving stuff to a cloud environment that is secure, then we're not going to be able to keep up. So you mentioned zero trust there, and that is that is a term that that is a buzzword that's getting thrown around a lot lately. Can you um, can you explain to the audience what what we mean when we talk about zero trust? Yeah, I mean, I'll try. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, what's, what's the gist? The gist is you can't just, and especially in government, that you don't just trust someone for the sake of they've had access at one point or they've had information at another time, a point in time, right? It's, we have always worked in government off trust, but we need to verify. Mm-hmm. And until you can verify, then you shouldn't let anyone access the system. If you have any sort of doubt, then you should definitely make that verification before you move um, into that Hey, here, here's information. Here's what you have access to. Uh, there definitely needs to be verification uh, along the way. Yeah. My, my sense, uh, the analogy that I, uh, I like to associate with this one is like the, the M&M analogy where it's crunchy on the outside and soft and chewy on the inside, where a lot of companies and organizations like to think they have borders. You know, and so at the edge of the network is where the, all the defenses are at. And then once you get in, everything's easy peasy and you can get to whatever you want. You know, my take on uh, where the zero trust stuff is going, at least in terms of like network and security is 
don't trust anything. Just because just because you're talking to another system within within our co- corporate network doesn't mean you can trust that system. You know, because people are bringing their own devices now to work, right? They're bringing their own uh, iPhones into the office or their own laptops sometimes and putting them on the network. Well, what if that device is compromised? And, and you know, so we, we have to just kind of assume that any device of the network could be compromised and, and act accordingly. Uh, so you, in particular, work on artificial intelligence stuff, another another buzzword that's been thrown around a lot in recent years. Um, but you are using AI to improve cybersecurity. So tell us how that works. And then what I, and then my follow-up question is, is what happens when the bad guys start using AI too? I, I've always been looking at it at regulations and standards and how do we keep up with them? So many regulations keep coming out. And so this goes beyond cybersecurity just overall general regulations and standards that are that are put out there or policies Mm -hmm. as well as risks can we use this to identify what authorities are are thinking about and what they're using and amplify the process because for example you have 92 new regulations that are affecting your business and they have a, a number uh, that like the pages of these regulations just keep going and going and going. And if every year a new regulation is coming out every year, a new law is coming out, that's going to affect your business. How do you keep up with all of them? Mm. And if you can, by using humans, you're paying a lot of money mm. and it becomes less effective and it comes less, less efficient because you need to keep up with these standards that or best practices that are being put out while at the same time keeping up with the regulations. So what do you do first? Do you work on the regulation or do you work on the standard? And if you already sort of go down this line of putting the artificial intelligence, or in this case, I'll I'll use the actual wording, like natural language processing Mm. to understand the context and how it relates to your business. And if you follow those regulations, you can then be able to work on the business that generates you more money. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. This goes back to the cybersecurity piece of it not being modernized, not being streamlined. You have all these different standards and, you know, some people say, well, where are the gaps within these standards? Where are the gaps of these frameworks that you're building? And if you need to meet all these certifications, then can you use artificial intelligence to make it more efficient and make it more effective? And that's essentially what I'm trying to do and I'm excited about. Um, and our, you know, the, the organization that I, that I uh, work for right now, Six Clicks, that's we're trying to make it easy. <laughs> Hence mm. the six clicks or less mm. to get you in a position to have a good cyber awareness as well as being compliant to the authority or the standard that you want to align yourself with. What's to prevent the bad guys from turning around and using these same tools against us? I mean, there's no prevention on that. I, I mean, I think people are going to try and use the same tools. You can create a law that says that you can't shoot someone, right? But if someone doesn't like that law, 
it doesn't stop them from using a gun, right? Mm. I wouldn't put up the law and a piece of paper in front of me and say, Hey, you can't do that. <laughs> right. And because it's not going to, it's not going to stop the bullet. But in terms of putting in the appropriate controls and continuing to educate yourself and get up to speed on some of these attacks and educating your, your team, you are helping create and mitigate some of these issues. Hmm. And the only way you can do that is, is to keep verifying, as you would put it, what's the soft, squishy stuff in the middle of the, the M&M? How do we verify that everything in here is what, what is supposed to be in this M&M? <laughs> and they have access to that is cohesive and not breaking through the shell to give Levo vulnerabilities. Gotcha. All right. Well, as we wrap up here, let's um, maybe get some advice from you. Uh, in your mind, what are what are key steps that people should be taking right now to avoid being a hacking victim? What do you tell people? Like when your neighbors or your family or whatever comes, you said, you know, Josh, what? Give me some tips. I need. I feel vulnerable. What should I be doing? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think starting to educate yourself is super helpful on these different uh, attacks and issues. I think also, you know, going to your manager and so in a workplace environment and say, hey, what are, what are the controls in place? That is super helpful too. Is basically, I, I like calling it like sort of managing up mm -hmm. <laughs> and saying, hey, I'm, these things have happened. We have We have all these stories of hacks. What are we doing to protect ourselves? Right. And I think that's probably the biggest thing is to ask the question to the person that's in charge in your organization. The other is, can we put in that encryption process? Do you have a, a multi-factor authentication on a personal level that lets you know like someone's accessing your email or not, right? Mm. I think that was probably the first thing that I've ever done, I ever did was put in some of these MFA programs and um, just continue to educate myself along those lines. Yeah. Yeah, education, absolutely. Um, and of course, that's what we're trying to do here. We're trying to make sure that people are aware of these things and uh, because, yeah, absolutely, awareness and education are step one in just about any, any problem you want to solve. All right, final question. Can we win this war? I mean, is it possible to reach some sort of I don't know, like a herd immunity against these broad spectrum cyber attacks, because so many of these attacks are just kind of, you know, spray and pray, right? It, it's, it's the phishing attacks. It's these opportunistic hackers that are, are, that are looking for these weaknesses that are everywhere and people who haven't updated their software. Are we going to win this cat and mouse game or is it always just going to, is it just going to be a pendulum that swings back and forth? Yeah, I think it's just going to be a pendulum. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, but I, you know, if you're, you're in the risk game, then you're always looking and saying, oh, here's a new risk. How do we mitigate that? We got to patch that. And then we got to educate, right? And I think that's always been the, the hard part for the good guys is you have so many regulations and rules that you need to follow. And it could be bureaucratically, but then you're also trying to keep up with everything else. Yeah. And so you kind of have to split your time. And this goes back to the artificial intelligence. Maybe we can get and this is the optimistic part is if we can become more effective and more efficient through automation tools, then 
if we have more players working on the automation and the tools, then it, it won't be a pendulum. It'll be a, we've educated people, we've put in the right processes, we've developed the right technology and we're going to win. But it's that adaptation. They, it seems as if right now we're, the good guys are adapting a lot less than <laughs> the, the bad guys. Yeah, I would. I, I, yeah, I think you're right. And I again, that that's why we're out there, both of us. I think in our own ways, you know, making sure that people are aware of these things. And I, there's, I, I've, I firmly believe that that there's a lot of basic low hanging fruit kind of things that we could all be doing. And if we get those things done, then it'll make it that much harder uh, for the bad guys to to attack us. Yeah. And, okay. So one last thing on that in terms of telling people. Wh- like what advice to give mm-hmm. yeah. is that this is a a thought for me is all about compound interest. Hmm. And if you can continue to build your skills and slowly work on different things and educate yourself and then put in those controls and keep spreading that, that message, the more and more you do that, the more and more you're going to understand these risks and issues and start mitigating those, you're going to have a better posture. So if you're doing five pushups a day and you're developing that muscle, then soon you'll be able to do 10 pushups a day. And then, you know, it just keeps going and going and going. So that, that building of education and awareness, and if you keep doing it, it just, it builds more on that, that compound interest. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I yeah, to me, that's like building in habits. It, it, you just got to work on it and, and make those, make, make these things habits, make the things you don't think about. Like, you know, when you leave your house, you don't think about locking the front door. You just do it all the time. Now we didn't always do that, you know, but that's where we're at now. And, you know, once we kind of develop that, those basic habits, I think we'll all be better off. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Josh, thanks so much for coming on the show. That was very interesting to talk to you and thanks for your advice. Yeah. Thanks, Carrie. I appreciate it. Thanks again to Josh for coming on the show. Great talking to him. Uh, I got some great bonus content from him as well. Some really interesting uh, kind of touching stories from him about his, how he got into cybersecurity and things that he likes to do on the side. So anyway, those will be going out to patrons soon. And again, if you want that challenge going, you got to get on it. Promotion's going to end in three days. So next week, we'll be back with another new show. And I think I am going to get in the schedule now. I think I'm just going to do news, then interview, news, then interview, just go back and forth and probably stop splitting the interviews up unless for some reason I happen to get another really, really long one or something. But um, I'm going to try to keep the shows as close to an hour as I can, especially in some of those news days. It's probably going to go a little bit over. Uh, But I'm going to try to keep everything about an hour each week and try to get into a little better rhythm, toggling back and forth between news shows and uh, interview shows. And that'll line up well with the blogs and the newsletters as well. So after that, I've got another interview, and uh, then I'll be going to DEF CON. I'm going to do some really fun reporting from DEF CON. And if, fingers crossed, if all goes well, I might have a killer interview from DEF CON. But I don't want to promise anything I can't keep, so we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens there. But stay tuned. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast. Make sure you don't miss anything. If there's been any reviews of the podcast or the book that were posted in the last week, uh, again, I recorded this a week ago, so I will check those again and report on those when I get back in next week's show. But if you post something on iTunes, on the iTunes page for this, or if you post something on Amazon, the uh, book review, I will read them here. Also, I have some more nights to proclaim to the realm. Uh, Stay tuned for those. Those will be coming up soon and spread out over the next few weeks. 
and I'm cooking up all sorts of fun stuff for the future. Thanks again for listening. Thanks especially to those out there who are patrons. It really means a lot to me that you're supporting what I'm doing here. Uh, you can also help just by spreading the word. Uh, turn other people onto the podcast. Turn them onto the book. Give away the book as a gift. Forward people some of the newsletters that you think they might find interesting or helpful. Follow me on social media. Repost some stuff from social media. All that helps. Every little bit. Okay, everybody. Take care out there. Stay safe. And until next week, as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.